theme of more the last several weeks. And uh, we've been looking at this from the perspective of trying to answer the questions, the key questions, the hard questions of life is, uh, what does God really call me to do? What does God want me to do with my life? And at different stages uh, of life, we, we kind of wrestle with that question. I, um, I guess I'm middle-aged. I don't know what I am if I'm 48. Um, I feel old. But uh, Bob Hope once said that middle age is when you still believe you'll feel better in the morning. And I'm quickly getting past that part of my life. And so... Uh, um, at least knowing that I'm not going to feel better tomorrow, I'm probably going to hurt worse. And so, um, but answering those key questions of life is, what does God call me to do with my life? Who does He want me to be? What, what some of those key decisions we come to those junctures in life and we wrestle with these kinds of questions. And so, we've been using these three simple words to kind of help us find that sweet spot, that place where we're going to match who God calls us to be, and what God wants us to do, or where He wants us to do that at, with just both His primary calling of our life and our specific calling to our life and just looking for that sweet spot that, uh, that he calls us to. And so we've used three words um, over the last few weeks that we'll continue to use because I, I hope that I ingrain them deeply in your mind. Um, and just the, the three simple words of be, do, and go. Uh, those three simple words are just attached to questions, again, that if we ask ourselves of them regularly, it helps us to answer that question, who has God called me to be? What has God called me to do? And where has God called me to go and to do that? And, um, and so as we have wrestled with that and thought of those, we've, we've addressed two of those words already. Uh, we talked a couple weeks about what does God want me to be? And the answer to that question is that God wants you to be his disciple. Um, and next week, we're going to transition and look at these three words from a more specific, unique you answer. But from a general answer, when you ask the question, well, God, what do you want me to be? He wants you to be his disciple first. And there's a core group of, of scripture. He just wants you to be a follower, a learner, to, to be doing and being who he wants you to be. He wants you to be a disciple. And so we also looked at the word do uh, last week, what does God call you to do with your life? What does he want you to do with your life? Well, again, we're going to get to that in more specifics here in a few weeks. But like he, primarily, he calls you to be a disciple, to be a disciple who is committed to help making disciples and to be about that business, that God wants that to be our primary calling over our life. And today we come to the third word, the word Go. And this is a word that may make you feel a little nervous or anxious um, because this is the, the thing where we think, okay, we get to that part of the Great Commission where I'm supposed to go and, and do something, I'm supposed to talk to somebody, and that's where it gets a little awkward. And so um, the, uh, the Skit Brothers have a series of videos called Awkward Invites, and so I want to show you one of them that maybe we can identify with when we think about this whole idea of going. So let's take a look at that if we could. Ted, the choice to be a good friend and invite his neighbor Rick to church, or tend a colony of angry bees. What'll it be, Ted? I choose the bees, Carl. All righty, Ted. Precise and slow movements discourage the fear pheromone in the queen bee. So I just pull this out to inspect the bees? Bingo. Uh, you're gonna wanna avoid making direct eye contact. These little guys view that as an act of aggression. 
you know, once the colony begins to swarm. You know, Ted, are you sweating? I have a condition. Wish you would have disclosed this earlier. Bees interpret sweat as hostility. <laughs> They're in my pants. They're in my pants. They're in my pants. They're in my pants. Stand down. Stand down. Get in there, Betty. Stand down. Hey, Rick. You want to go to church with me? Yeah. Yeah, why don't we uh, swing by the hospital first? That'd be real nice. The theme of go, um, we can probably relate to that, right? Uh, it can be a scary thing um, that we maybe would rather work with a hive of bees than uh, go through the matter of bringing up faith in, with our friends or with those who maybe don't believe. And so I want to encourage you today to embrace that calling around that word go. A lot of us assume that going means moving to a new place, and it may in different places of our life, but I believe that going really starts much closer to home, and that's what we want to look at here today. And I want you to think about this uh, phrase with me as we think about the word go. And we've kind of built on this idea last week, that uh, these last three weeks, two weeks, I should say, um, that going means this, that I'm called to be a disciple who is committed to helping make disciples, and this is the phrase we want to add to that today, where you are. That be, do, go really begins very much in your everyday life. Um, you don't have to change your travel patterns. You don't have to change your schedule all that much to be committed to this process of being a disciple who is committed to making disciples where you are. Because all around you are opportunities to do that. If and when God may move you somewhere else, you know what he's going to call you to do in that place? Be a disciple who's committed to making disciples where you are. And so that be-do-go process really stays the same throughout our life. He calls us to bloom where we are as a disciple and to be uh, his disciples who is committed to making disciples right where I'm at, where I am. In his book, More, that we've kind of based these ideas off of the last few weeks, uh, Todd Wilson makes this claim. Um, and you notice those little circles around the word go. Again, we've said those aren't little sunshines to make you feel happy and warm. And those are really uh, representative of something I want us to think about here today. He makes the claim in this book that every one of us have 50 um, interactions, 50 relationships of influence just right where you are. And I, I first balked at that, um, but then I got to thinking that, and what he uses with those circles, he says, I want you to just think about your life, and I want you to think about the places where your life intersects with other people's life. And so I made a list of, if I was to take one of those little circles out and say, well, one of those circles represents my family, and I have like 45 kids, and so that fills up one of those circles already. And so um, there's family connections, right? I have influence there, right? And I can, I can make a difference in those relationships. The people I live in neighborhood with, um, uh, pretty wild place, uh, crazy place to live. I'm kidding. I'm looking at my neighbors. And so, uh, but, but, but there's a circle of influence that I, I have and I can work in there. Um, I referee with people that I meet, and, and it's kind of a, a, a support group of battered and abused people who don't think much of themselves by this time of year. Um, and so there's a group of people I referee with, and, and I can be intentional with that, right? Or people that I, I run with or play golf with every once in a while, people I know at work, um, and they, they need Jesus like crazy, I'm telling you. And uh, people I meet through Upward, people I meet in just community things I do. 
And so if you were to begin each one of those circles and say, well, this is my um, recreational group of whatever that is, this is my work circle, and you begin to trace those, just put names of people in each one of those little lines, if you were to do that exercise, I think you would quickly begin to realize that um, some of you have a lot more than 50 relational connections. Some of you may be scared to death. If you're an introvert, that may scare you to death to think about that. But we all have those relational connections. And what God is calling us to do really at, at a starting point is to be a disciple who's committed to helping make disciples right where I am, right, 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 where I am, right where you are. And so I, I just want us to think about, well, how do we do that? How do I then begin to take those circles and those names and those people and those situations, and how do I begin to engage in this be-do-go process with the people I know, care about, and love. And so I just want to give two thoughts with this um, and, um, um, and see where we go with it, okay? The first one is this. I want you to think about this phrase, that going begins with loving well. If you're going to be a person who is engaged in this going process, um, you've got to nail this down first. There, it begins with loving well, now, we looked last week at the Great Commission, right? There are a couple of verses in the Scripture that have the word great attached to the theme of them. And we looked at the Great Commission last week. And that was Matthew 28, 19 to 20, where Jesus said this at the end of Matthew, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, there's a lot of doing in that verse, right? I'm going, I'm baptizing, I'm teaching, I'm talking, I'm sharing, I'm doing all of those things, right? There's a, there's a goal with those things. I can measure a lot of those things um, in life, and we can as a people. And so there's the Great Commission, and that is a, a, a good charge to the church for all of us to be engaged in. But there is also another great passage in the Bible that people have called the great commandment or the greatest commandments, and it's found in Matthew chapter 22, in which Jesus is approached by some of his opponents, some religious leaders, and they ask him the question, uh, Jesus, what do you say the greatest commandment? If you were to go through your whole Old Testament, what's God made hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. What's the command that's greatest? Which one is the most important? And Jesus echoes some words from the book of Deuteronomy and other places as well, but Deuteronomy specifically, to say this, the great commandment. He says this, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus calls us, and if I was to draw this out, I think I would go with the idea if I was to do like a, a pyramid kind of thing. The bottom of the pyramid that holds the great commission on top of it is the great commandment. That everything I do, everything I'm about has to begin with this love for God. And because I love God, there's this love for my neighbor. There's this love for others that ought to grow out of my life. And so as I obey God by doing the Great Commission, it never must be a loveless duty that I just go and I tell people about Jesus and do all these things, but I don't love them. There's this love that ought to flow out of us that we love God with all of our being. And we're learning to love him more and more and more in our life. 
surrendering our heart, our soul, our mind to him. But then the second is like it, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he ties them together. They're not two separate things. There's one commandment, really. It's, it's tied together. Because as I love God, I'm going to love others better. And so that really calls us to this, this motivation. It says, well, well, why do I go and make disciples and baptize them and, and teach them? What's the motivation of that? It must be based upon the great commandment or the greatest commandment of love God and love others. I don't know if you've ever felt like a project to someone. They're trying to sell you something or motivate you to join something. Um, But none of us probably enjoy feeling like a project, right? No one feels like, well, you're just another stat so that I can add to my list of, of people I've made a disciple of. I wrestled with this tweet this week. I've thought about it several times, and I just want to read it to you. Um, and just You can think about it. There's lots of layers to it. I don't know if I agree with all of it, but I, I just want to share it with you. This is from Rich uh, Villatis, whatever his name is. It says this, that Christians are often bad at making friends with non-Christians because our end goal is not friendship. And I think that tweet has something to do with a little bit of this. That oftentimes we don't connect well with people because we don't, our goal is not to love them. It's just because we want them, we want to convince them, right? We want them to do it our way or to see it our way. But there's a heart behind this tweet, I think, that as he goes on his thread of, of things to talk about, he's not discouraging evangelism, not doing anything, but just, just causing us to think about our hearts. Why do we do what we do? And so if we don't love God and people, we will end up making them feel like projects, And again, none of us enjoy really feeling like a project very much. And so we must learn to love well. If I'm going to be a person who who is a great, is a God-centered, Christ-centered disciple, that's what God calls me to be, and I really want to help other people to become that, the going must be based upon a, a love that I am both having and asking God to work out in my life. All right, God, I don't want to do this just because it's raw obedience and I'm, I'm gritting my teeth the whole time. I really don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because the Bible says. But God, would you ignite in me a greater love for you that produces a love for other people and so that when I have com- conversations or thoughts or, or interactions with people, may they know whether they agree with me or not, whether they respond to me or not, that I love them, that I care about them. And so that, I think, grows on the second thing that I want you to think about. That first of all, that going really begins with, um, with a love that we base our lives upon and show through our life. But the second thing is this, that, grow, that going blooms by shepherding well. God wants us to love well, but how do we learn to love well? It really... It comes down to, I think, becoming better shepherds. And I want you to go back to those circles and think about those circles of influence and you choosing to see, you know what, this is my circle and I have relationships with these people. So how can I, as a friend, as someone who loves God, who wants to love them, how can I shepherd them? Hopefully in the direction of Jesus, but how can I just shepherd them, care for them, lead them, um, give them things that bless them in their life as Jesus does for me? And so I think the way that we overcome the lovelessness is we, we emphasize and we learn to practice being better shepherds. And so how do we learn to be better shepherds is the question I want us to ask. Uh, this quote is from Robert Coleman. We quoted him last week as well. He's got several things on this theme that, that really are beautiful. But I loved what he said um, 
But this idea of, uh, of Jesus and how he works in our life and how that overflow into the lives of other people. He said this, that the beauty of the Lord is he turns helpless, wandering sheep into shepherds who will love the sheep and lead them in the way of God. And I hope, if you're a Christian, that that's the way that you see the way that the Lord has worked in your life. That the beauty of what God has done for you is that he has turned me, who was a helpless and wandering sheep, and because of his grace and his work and his, his, his will in my life as he's working it out, he eventually turns me and you into a shepherd. Now, now oftentimes we think shepherd, and there is a biblical term for a, a, like a, a church leader role for a shepherd, an elder kind of thing, and, and that is certainly true. But I think all of us are called to be a shepherd to somebody. God has put you in relational circles and relational intersections with people's lives because you're able to shepherd their life and their hearts and, and to think about them and to walk with them and to care for them and to speak into their life so that you can shepherd them and lead them in the direction of the Lord. And so I, I want to read a verse. It's a pop, you've heard it before. Matthew chapter 9 that I think echoes this um, and um, says this, that Jesus um, comes across a crowd of people. He's with his disciples already, but he's, he sees this mass of people. And this is his response, that this is where we learn to shepherd is by doing things like this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus understood that. And, and it's an interesting study. Um, I don't normally plug the newsletter, but if you were to read my newsletter article this week, this month uh, coming up, um, this should be a top seller. I'm kidding. It shouldn't be. But I wrote about this because I think as you trace this theme of shepherd and shepherding and, and what Jesus did, not just for the masses, but as you watch him with the disciples, I think what you find is that it is exactly this. So he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers or laborers into his harvest. And maybe the heart that Jesus says that from, um, maybe we could describe a laborer as a shepherd as well. That the, that the great shepherd, and Jesus called himself the great shepherd uh, of the sheep, of his flock that he loves, and he calls us then to shepherd one another as well, always leading them to the one who can take the helpless and wandering and, and, and change their life and restore their life. And, and as he does so, he calls us then to shepherd others that might come to know him too. And so going um, uh, blooms by shepherding well. And so what does Jesus illustrate for us in those verses? I think one of the things he illustrates is that we need to learn to see the world differently. We need to learn to see the world differently. Um, if you remember the story of Esther, um, Esther was queen um, in a very hostile and tumultuous time. Uh, she's Jewish. Uh, she's in Babylon, Persia. Um, her, her people have been exiled there. She gets caught up in a great big best metaphor is Bachelor episode, where she eventually gets chosen by the king to be uh, the queen. And she's Jewish. The king doesn't know that. A man who hates the Jewish people gets a law passed that's going to exterminate all the Jewish people. Um, her uncle Mordecai comes to her in es Esther chapter 4 and just says, look, Esther, you are the one person who's in the relational crosshairs of the king to be able to say something that might spare your people. 
And, and he challenges her to see the situation differently because she sees it as, I need to stay in the shadows and be quiet. But he challenges her with those beautiful words that you never know that God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. And I think more of that needs to happen in our life. That maybe God has caused your life to intersect with someone else's life. Um, you're not a king. There's no king queens. It's not that dramatic. But the Lord puts you in places on purpose. Your interactions with who you know, where you work, where you're at, where you live. We can just see that those are just random chances or we can see them as divine appointments that maybe God has put you in those places for such a time as this. And so you have to learn to see your world differently. The people you work with, the people that you live with, the people that you live around, the people that you hang out with, that God has probably put your life, if you're a Christian, he has put you in that place, in that circle and all those names, he has put you there so that you might be and do and go to them. And the way that you do that first is just by loving them, by being a shepherd to them. And that just means being attentive to their life. Where are their needs? Where are their hurts? Where can I show grace? Where can I speak truth? Where can I love them? Where can I encourage them? How can I pray for them? Um, all of those things that a shepherd does as he cares for his flock. He or she does as they care for their flock. Just seeing the world differently. And number two is this, is the significance then fills each moment. When I begin to see those relational opportunities differently, then significance begins to fill each moment. Everyday moments become meaningful moments. If I could be allowed to quote Robert Coleman one more time, I will do it. Here it is. It says, nothing is irrelevant if your goal is to be a disciple and do disciple making. Nothing is irrelevant. There's not random chance that, hey, strange that I ran into that person today. Maybe that's an opportunity for me to shepherd someone's life, to be present in someone's life in a way to help them, encourage them, and to just plant seeds, water seeds, to encourage them in their life. You see, nothing is irrelevant if your goal is to be a disciple and do disciple making. So I want to encourage you in that today. And I want to finish today, um, and I did say finish, and then we have like eight minutes till 10 o'clock, so be excited, because I only have, I have shorter pages of notes. It's my birthday gift to you, all right? And so um, God bless us, everyone. Mark chapter six is where I want to finish this today, okay? Um, if you were to read all of Matthew, Mark chapter six, um, and just think through that chapter and ride the emotional roller coaster that that chapter brings, it does some interesting things. Um, it, it begins the chapter with Jesus being rejected in his own hometown. And then it continues in verse 6 that he calls his 12 disciples to him. He's been discipling them and training them for a while. And then he sends them out, I think two by two, um, to go to random villages around and, uh, and just preach and prepare the way for Jesus to show up in those places later. It's kind of a trial run, preparing them for things, that are, uh, for future activities, uh, ministry they're going to do. And so he tells them, and they go, and they do these ministries, and they've had wonderful times, wonderful experiences. Um, but while they're gone, Mark inserts the story of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus' cousin. Uh, a lot of these disciples of Jesus um, were prepared to be disciples of Jesus because they, they listened to, they repented, they submitted to John's baptism. They were John's disciples and followers. And then when Jesus shows up, Jesus says, hey, I'm the guy that John was preparing you for. And so they had an emotional attachment to, to John the Baptist. It tells the story of how he is executed by Herod. So that would have been a very emotional 
uh, scary thing when the king of your land is killing off some of your favorite preachers and you're a preacher, that makes you nervous, right? And so they've been on this busy, exhausting trip. Someone they love and look up to has been executed. And then they come back in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, they did not have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they're probably quite excited to be able to go on a little vacation here, right? Take a few days off. Let's just go get away. Let's go eat. Let's go rest. Let's go talk. Let's go, let's go uh, kind of unpack everything that's happened. But if you keep reading, it leads into the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The masses follow Jesus. They see where he's going. And the desolate place becomes a cram-packed place where it's all just these people that are just there listening to Jesus. And Jesus, with the verse we read earlier about him seeing them, having compassion on them, occurs here as well in a similar situation in Mark's gospel. And he just begins to preach and teach and share and do all the things he does. And so the day is past and it's the end of the day. And there's five, 10,000 of them, however, 15,000, whatever it is, um, 5,000 men. And Jesus says to his disciples who are tired, weary, looking forward to getting away, Hey, why don't you go feed these guys? We have no money. We've got nothing to do this. How are we going to do this? And it leads through the whole thing of where they go find the, the boy and his, his loaves and his fishes. And, and Jesus multiplies it. And he's, he does this miracle of feeding 5,000 people. And everyone is amazed by that. But my favorite part of that verse is that as they went, as they shepherded this flock under the Lord's leading, as they interrupted their life and they got involved in this situation, I just love how this passage ends in verse 41. Um, it says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and to, to set before the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And I love what this says. And the disciples picked up how many basketfuls? Twelve. Twelve, right? Twelve basketfuls left over. And I just think that that says something to me when I think about, it can be a scary thing when we talk about this whole going and trying to be a shepherd of people's lives and being intentional in people's lives and praying for them and inviting them and doing those kinds of things and just having those conversations with people. Those can be scary things. And the disciples felt over their head in this situation. But I am thankful that as they lived out the be, do, and go in this story. They were his disciples doing what Jesus called them to do um, and just going, just go feed them, go take this food to them. When all that was done and, they, and the crowd had dispersed and they're all sitting there exhausted and tired at the end of the day, every one of them had a basket that just reminded them that the Lord cares for me. The Lord looked out for us, right? Where were we at the beginning of this day? We were tired, hungry, exhausted. We're getting away to go feed. And it seemed like the Lord had forgotten us in the busyness of the day. But boy, here at the end of the day, what do we have? He feeds me. He cares for me. He is a shepherd to me. And so as we kind of think about this whole general calling that all of us have to be disciples who are involved in disciple making and, and, and just wherever we are, that can be intimidating and scary. And you may think, well, I just, I'd rather deal with bees than do that. Um, I just want to encourage you today that, that a story like that reminds me that as you go and do that, the Lord is mindful of his disciples who do that. The Lord cares for you and he's going to provide. And the way that the disciples' faith grew 
was by doing, uh, by being and doing and going. And, and, and all of a sudden, they, if they wouldn't have done this, if they wouldn't have cooperated with the Lord, if they would have pouted and said, no, we're supposed to be on vacation here, we're, we're supposed to be retreating here, and here you are dealing with all these people, we're just going to sit back here, you do your thing, we're not going to help, they would have missed the blessing of seeing God provide for them and care for them and grow their faith and grow their lives. And so how do you grow in your faith? I think one of the best things that you will ever do to grow your faith is to commit yourself to be his disciple the very best that you can, um, to be committed to being in this disciple-making process of loving people, praying for people, inviting people, as you learn, sharing with what you know, um, helping people learn and grow wherever you are. And as you do that sometimes scary process, you find God begins to grow in your life. And you find Jesus meeting you with, 12, with a basket of, of, of food to say, hey, I haven't forgotten you. Um, as I'm doing all this, I still care about you. I'm still shepherding you as you try to shepherd other people. And so I want to encourage you today to be mindful of that, to be mindful of, of the Lord's walking with us in all of these things. And so I hope that you will take those circles and sometime this week, and you'll just start to draw out some of those those people in your life, what circles do you have? Where do you go? To work, to live, to, to play, all those things. And who, who is it that you know? And who can you begin to pray for? That's a great prayer list, by the way, if you have those circles. Say, I'm praying for these people. I know them. Uh, just praying for God to give me opportunities to love them, invite them, care for them, share with them, pray for them, whatever it may be. Um, and as I work through that, as I try to be a shepherd, intentionally looking out for the lives of people, um, God can use that to grow us right where you are.